Hello, I'm Karen Long, and you're listening to The Asterix, a production of the Annisville Wolf Book Awards. An asterix is a reference mark indicating an omission. Today, we're figuring out some of the holes in our knowledge around reconstruction with Professor Eric Foner, the author most recently of The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. Professor Foner, the author of two dozen books, won the Annisfield Wolf Prize for Lifetime Achievement in 2020. Welcome, Professor. Nice to talk to you. We are speaking today on January 7th, and I thought we should begin reflecting a bit on what happened at the nation's capital when insurrectionists entered. As I understand it, the Confederate flag did not broach the Capitol throughout the Civil War, but it did so yesterday. So I'm thinking your reflections on that would be valuable for our listeners to hear. I can't think of another time when the Confederate flag was prominently displayed in the Capitol building. Maybe there was one. I can't, uh, I can't think of one in our history. When somebody told me that they, that they had just seen the Confederate flag on TV being carried around the Capitol, I, my first reaction was, good. These people are telling us exactly what they believe. You cannot beat around the bush. You cannot claim to, uh, you know, be a patriot and could display the Confederate flag. You cannot claim to believe in racial equality and display the Confederate flag. Of course, I find it shocking. The Confederate flag is a symbol of slavery and white supremacy. Uh, if you don't believe me, just uh, read the so-called cornerstone speech of Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, who, by the way, was from Georgia, which has been in the news a lot lately. And Stevens said the purpose, the, the Confederacy embodies the principle of white supremacy, that the whites are superior to blacks and that the normal or natural status of African-Americans is as slave. That was what the Confederacy stood for, according to its vice president. Now, of course, President Trump has identified himself in a weird sort of way with the Confederacy. He has condemned efforts to remove Confederate monuments from various places. He vetoed the uh, Military Appropriation Act, which passed over his veto, partly because it included a provision for changing the names of uh, military bases named after Confederate uh, generals. You know, he has, he has glorified white supremacist organizations such as the people who marched in Charlottesville a couple of years ago, and we remember his reaction to that. They're all good people. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not surprised that these demonstrators egged on and inspired by Trump um, displayed the Confederate flag. But, um, you know, that is part of the history of the United States, I'm sorry to say, of, of the deep, the, the shadow of slavery still exists in our society. And um, in a way, inadvertently, the uh, rioters were demonstrating that. And as you so often say, the unfinished work of the Reconstruction, you've spent your life among historians. You've led three professional historic um, associations. 
your father and uncle were important historians. Did you think about them yesterday as you were watching this? Uh, I did. I often think about my father particularly and what he would think. He would have been pretty shocked to see this. On the other hand, maybe not 100%. You know, I, I, I think yesterday is a historic day, but for two, you might say, contradictory reasons both of which are deeply embedded in the American experience. One is the election from Georgia of an African-American man and a Jewish man as senators of that state. That's an astonishing thing if you know anything about the history of Georgia and uh, the racism there and uh, anti-Semitism deeply ingrained in the place. So. It, it shows you that things can change. It's, it's a sign of great optimism that, um, you know, that a state like that with a, such a long history uh, can actually maybe overcome it. Um, on the other hand, uh, and my father was an optimist, definitely an optimist, uh, despite much evidence to the contrary, he believed in the fundamental goodness of people. Mm. Um, so I think he would have been very gratified by that. Uh, on the other hand, the insurrection or riot or mob, whatever you want to call it, in the Capitol was shocking, but it was also rooted in some ways in the American experience. You know, we, the effort to overturn an election, the effort to, um, you know, uh, claim that somebody had won who didn't. We have many examples of that in American history. And now if you go back to the Reconstruction period that I have studied a great deal after the Civil War, there are plenty of violent uprisings against what was then interracial political democracy. Uh, the Colfax Massacre of 1873 in Louisiana, where an armed white unit uh, basically murdered uh, dozens of black people uh, to take over the government of that uh, parish, Grant Parish, uh, in Louisiana, or jump ahead to 1898, the Wilmington riot in North Carolina, where an armed mob of whites basically had a coup d'etat and uh, evicted the elected biracial government of Wilmington and there was substituted a white segregationist one. Mm-hmm. So um, we have seen this kind of thing before, not quite at the national level like that, uh, and certainly not with the president egging on the rioters, but certainly Governors in the South have egged on lynchers and rioters and others throughout American history. So, I, you know, my, my feeling is you saw the collision of two parts of the American experience. Both are really deeply embedded in our history. One is the aspiration for greater uh, democracy and greater uh, equality. And the other is a, a kind of a, a white nationalism that refuses to consider everybody in the country is equally uh, American. Uh, so rarely do they come into conflict or in juxtaposition as dramatically as yesterday. That's so interesting. It's so Janice-based because you think of Stacey Abrams and I think of her as the person I would put a statue up next. Oh, as absolutely. A great uh, the election results in Georgia are a tribute to Abrams and to the many people who worked with her to register large numbers of new voters, to get them out to the polls, to imbue them with a sense that they actually can make a difference. It's not surprising if you look at the history of that state and others that many people, 
especially perhaps African-Americans, may feel th their voice is just not going to be heard, so why vote anyway? Um, but, and in fact, you know, as I say, we, yesterday was a microcosm of so much in our history and in the state's history. Why is there a runoff in Georgia anyway? There's only two states, I think, that have that system. The reason is very clear. It was adopted in 1963 at the height of the civil rights movement to make sure that the candidate preferred by black voters didn't, didn't win because whites were divided among other candidates. Um, and uh, so you need a, a 50%, not just a plurality as in almost every other state to win these elections. But that was clearly a way to limit the electoral power of African-Americans. And we saw it, luckily they overcame it this time. One other point, why was the Congress meeting anyway? It was meeting in order to count the electoral votes. An archaic system dating back to the founding of the country uh, which is totally undemocratic. Right. Trump himself demonstrates that you can lose the election and then win. You cannot get right. as many votes as your opponent and yet you become president. So that our democracy, we shouldn't, you know, sometimes we talk about America's just been a great democracy from its beginning. No, it's a flawed democracy. It's a democracy that excluded large numbers of people for much of our history, women, African-Americans, others. It's a democracy in which today there are states trying to repress the right to vote. Um, more power to Stacey Abrams, obviously, but they're, they're, again, these two traditions are in conflict here. One very democratic, one very undemocratic, and they're both alive and well. It's a perfect moment, I think, for us to segue to you reading a bit. We'd like to hear directly from the work that inspired our jury to elevate it. So if you don't mind from your most recent book, reading a passage that feels pertinent to the, what you've just said. Yes, a couple of little excerpts. One, the, really the beginning of the book, the preface, and it, this sort of is relevant at the moment for seeing what we had yesterday. Uh, it's about the way history is still living with us. So right. this is the preface to my book. The Civil War and the Reconstruction period that followed formed the pivotal era of American history. The war destroyed the institution of slavery, ensured the survival of the Union, and set in motion economic and political changes that laid the foundation for the modern nation. During Reconstruction, the United States made its first F attempt, flawed but truly remarkable for its time, to build an egalitarian society on the ashes of slavery. Some of the problems of those years haunt American society today. Vast inequalities of wealth and power, terrorist violence, aggressive racism. But perhaps the era's most tangible legacies are the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments to the US Constitution. The 13th irrevocably abolished slavery. The 14th constitutionalized the principles of birthright citizenship and equality before the law. And the 15th aimed to secure black male suffrage throughout the reunited nation. Then I go on to write about these three amendments and just um, one other little excerpt here. This is the chapter on the 13th amendment, which irrevocably abolished slavery throughout the entire nation. In his second inaugural address, delivered on March 4th, 1865, 
as the Civil War drew to a close, Abraham Lincoln described the destruction of American slavery as astounding. Lincoln, who always chose his language carefully, was justified in using so dramatic and uncommon a word, astounding. It appears only three other times in his entire collected works. To be sure, in retrospect, the abolition of slavery seems inevitable, a preordained result of the evolution of American society, or in some tellings, a logical outgrowth of the ideals of the American Revolution. Yet it is important to remember that despite decades of anti-slavery agitation, there were more slaves in the United States when the war began than at any point in our history. Slave owners and their allies had controlled the federal government for nearly the entire period since the founding of the Republic. In 1858, the Chicago Tribune, a major journalistic voice of anti-slavery sentiment, flatly declared that no man living would see the end of American slavery. And then I go on to show how the slavery issue developed during the Civil War and how the 13th Amendment was conceived and passed and ratified and what it meant, or at least the debate over what it meant, which still goes on today. Um, but I wanted to begin by making people rethink the notion which comes so naturally to us that, well, the end of slavery was just inevitable. It wasn't. It wasn't inevitable. And um, it took a vast war with terrible, uh, you know, loss of life to actually bring this institution to an end. And you have another beautiful sentence here where you say it played out over time, arose from many causes, and was the work of many individuals. Right. In a weird way, that sentence is an effort to evade a question, which historians debated a lot in the 1990s, early 20th century. I think it's faded a bit, but it's who freed the slaves? Mm. Was it Abraham Lincoln with his Emancipation Proclamation? Was it Congress? Was it the military? Was it slaves themselves who ran away from the plantations? And my answer is yes, it was all of them. Mm -hmm. It wasn't any one person or moment. It was a complicated historical process. And you have an entire book on President Lincoln, The Fiery Trial, um, which I love. I love the title. You're very careful not to lionize him, despite, you know, in the face of all that we hold dear about him. Well, uh, the title comes from Lincoln, of course, the fiery uh, trial in one of his messages to Congress, I think 1862, um, the fiery trial through which we pass. A, a very, you know, Lincoln, I don't necessarily lionize Lincoln, but I certainly admire Lincoln. And I begin by saying I admire him as a writer. Lincoln was a master of the English language. Uh, you cannot read his writings, mostly public speeches. You know, we don't have a lot of letters, diaries, anything like that of Lincoln, unlike, let us say, Thomas Jefferson. But we have his public statements and speeches, which are magnificent in their choice of language. And this was a man who had one year of formal schooling in his entire life. He was just about entirely self-educated. And yet he mastered the language as well as any president, maybe other than Thomas Jefferson. Um, 
So yes, I wrote a book a while ago, The Fiery Trial, about Lincoln's relationship to slavery, the evolution of his attitudes and policies towards slavery, race. Uh, I am, when that book came out, one of my good friends who's part of the Lincoln industry, historically speaking, said to me, you know, I really like your book because now you're on Lincoln's side. Because <laughs> I had criticized Lincoln. And I said to myself, that, that's not really what I'm trying to do. I'm neither on Lincoln's side nor against Lincoln's side. That's not how I think about what I'm doing. I'm trying to deal with Lincoln as a complex figure, as all human beings right. are, with great strengths and some weaknesses. But my main argument, of course, was that Lincoln changed. Lincoln grew. Lincoln's views evolved. Before the Civil War, Lincoln shared many of the racial prejudices of his society, but he outgrew many of them during the Civil War. That's the greatness of Lincoln. He wasn't born ready to sign the Emancipation Proclamation at age one. He grew into it, and he was still growing at the time he was killed. And that's the evolution I try to trace. You can't freeze Lincoln at any one moment and say, there is the quintessential Lincoln. People try to do that. They take one quote, one speech, one letter and say, that is Lincoln. But no, Lincoln is in motion all the time. That's what great leadership is in a time of unparalleled crisis. You can't just stay stuck in every old idea. You need to be flexible and open-minded and react to the situation. So yeah, I don't lionize Lincoln. I'm not one of those who just wants to knock him off his pedestal either. I try to tell the story as I see it. Once again, you evade the binary. Oh, okay, right. I try to do that, right. <laughs> and now we'll pause for a short break. The Asterix is a project of the Cleveland Foundation to bring more readers and listeners into conversation with the best writers in English. In this case, recipients of the Annisfield Wolf Book Award. We now return to the conversation. And I have to say, I was also thinking about your very first work in light of our historic week, Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Men, which came out of your doctoral work at Columbia, where you were looking at the roots of the Republican Party that published 51 years ago. And good gosh, look where that party sits today. Well, yeah, it is. Uh a little disconcerting to your math is correct of course but to think <laughs> about 51 years ago is a little disconcerting um, you were a protege well i'm it it's the, more to the point it's still in print that's the great thing and people still read it and they talk to me about it occasionally i give a lecture somewhere and someone says you know i've read a number of your books but i think best book is Free Soil, Free Labor, Free Men. And I say, maybe ungraciously, you mean it's been downhill ever since? <laughs> and of course, they, oh, no, no, that's not what I meant. To, you know, fine. But um, yes, it's about the early Republican Party. It was written as my doctoral dissertation under the supervision of Richard Hofstadter, my mentor, one of the great historians of the previous generation there. Uh, it's very much a Hofstadter book in the sense that it's about the issues that Hofstadter wrote about and that I got him imbibed. Political culture, political ideas, how political parties get organized. Um, 
you know, uh, it, it's not social history as would come a little later. It's not about grassroots kind of uh, social life. Uh, it's, it's about political culture, really, you mm -hmm. might say. And um, how that, and it, there was very little about the, you know, the early Republican Party was not actually the subject of a lot of historical literature when I did it. I became interested in it because this was the 60s and, um, you know, people were in the streets demanding racial equality. And many of us students at that time wanted to know where this came from in our history. Um, they had, you know, a, but when I was in high school, going way back, you know, nobody really cared much about the history of slavery, the history of race relations. I recently checked the textbook that I had in high school uh, in the suburbs of Long Island, New York, and no African-American person was mentioned by name in that American history textbook. No Frederick Douglass, no Du Bois, no Booker T. Washington, no Marcus Garvey, you name it. Um, that just wasn't part of history. But with things happening in the street, we began to say, well, where does this come from that's happening? Where in our history, you know, and I got very interested in the politics of change. The yes. Republican Party, when it was founded, was an anti-slavery party. Their purpose was to stop the westward expansion of slavery and eventually, as Lincoln said, put it on the course of extinction. It may take a good while for that to happen, but you know, is there were people around like John Brown who said the way to deal with slavery is through a invasion of the South, you know? Mm -hmm. There were people like abolitionists who said you cannot take part in a political system like this because it's tainted by slavery. Abolitionists shouldn't vote or anything like that. And then there were anti-slavery politicians who said, no, we're gonna use the political system to uh, further the anti-slavery cause. And that, that it, since, because of what was happening in the 60s, both the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, that's what interested me. So, you know, I say this because one of the adages I used to always tell my students was, you know, every historian writes with one eye on the present. You don't take your answers from the present, but you take your questions what interests you is reflecting the world around you. Yes, that's beautifully put. Yeah, and you, it's not, you don't find the answer by looking at the, today's newspaper, but it, that's why I was interested in this and many other people began writing about slavery and anti-slavery at that time. So yeah, that book is still out there. Um, I'm, glad, I'm very glad that that is the case. Me too. And it speaks to one of my favorite boner quotes, which is, a future requires a new past. <laughs> a new future requires a new past. Right. Yeah, you know, here's what I mean by that. Again, I, I'm thinking back to when I was in high school and the history I learned there. I don't mean to criticize my high school history teacher, Mr. Graff. He was a very dedicated teacher. But, um, you know, the, as I said, the, the, the history we were taught then was very bland, very even, and there were, there were no crises, there were no problems. American history was just a nice little straight line of greater and greater progress and freedom. And um, whatever problems existed had been mostly solved and they'd pretty much disappear soon. Um, when the 60s happened, that history collapsed for a simple reason. 
it could not have produced the world we were living in. That history couldn't lead up to the present. It, why were thousands of people in the streets all the time? The, that history couldn't explain this. Um, that's what I mean by a new history needs or requires a new past. Again, not something that is just purely politicized by the moment, but something that explains how we got to where we actually are today. And I think the events of yesterday in the Capitol will probably also lead to a reconsideration of some of our assumptions about American history. Where did this come from in our history? I Amen. think historians have to answer that question. And it also seems so pertinent to the contemplation that Black Lives Matter movement and action has called us to. I was thinking as people got on their devices and said, this isn't us. And the, one of the lessons for me of Black Lives Matter is this is us. It's that the, us. It's definitely the, part of us. The it's violence against George Floyd has yep. been there all along. Oh, absolutely. Violence, violent policing of African-American communities is as American as apple pie. I mean, this goes way, way back. Um, and, you know, let's go back to Reconstruction, which is how I always look at things. Um, one of the catalysts for the 14th Amendment, which really changed our Constitution, was the um, Memphis and New Orleans riots of 1866. In those riots, white police officers took part in violent assaults on black communities. That's one of the reasons they put into the 14th Amendment this promise of the equal protection of the law. And they meant by that not just legal equality, but actual protection. I mean, real physical protection. You need a different kind of policing if you're going to have equal protection of the law. But so, so the, the, the role of the police has been very critical in establishing the parameters of American race relations. And unfortunately, it hasn't changed nearly enough as the events of last year uh, certainly demonstrated. On a different note, one of the things that struck me when I reviewed a bit about you to prepare for our conversation is not only do you swim among and come from historians, but you also picked one to marry in that your wife <laughs> is a historian of dance. Yes, and is. I thought it would be interesting to know if in the dinner table conversation, some of her insights about the history of dance has influenced some of your work. My wife is a very, very talented and prominent history of dance. History of dance, may I say, is a small field. It's not represented in many, or at many universities. Um, she's an internationally renowned person in that field. More people write about, are interested in Lincoln, let us put it that way, but- uh, That's true. Right, but um, I think my wife's influence on me more is as a writer. She is the best writer that I know. She's a considerably better writer than I am. And I learn about writing from her. And moreover, we have a very um, cooperative writing relationship. We, we are each other's editors. We read everything 
that the other person writes, whether it's an op-ed piece in a newspaper, a book review, or a book. Sometimes, <laughs> let me put it this way, I'm, I'm, I've just been reading the chapters of a book that my wife will be submitting, you know, sending to the publisher within a month or two and making suggestions. This can lead to um, <laughs> differences of opinion. Let's just put it that way. But uh, still, um, I'm not sure that, uh, and weirdly enough, if you go and look at my list of books I've published, one of them, which is actually a little misleading, one, you'll find Dance for a City, which is a book, a catalog that went along with a museum exhibition that my wife and I curated on the history of the New York City Ballet. Hmm. This was 20 some odd years ago. Um, the New York Historical Society did that exhibit. Um, unfortunately, because dance is a smaller field, the publisher insisted that my name be on the book as a co-author. Hmm. Even though it's my wife's project, I, I, I'm not a dance historian. And she was a little annoyed about that. Let's put it this way. I, I insisted it, or it, it has to be with Eric Foner. It can't, you know, it has to be, she's number one. But, um, uh, you know, so, but, so I do have a sort of a publication on my record about the history of dance, but I don't claim any real expertise. But I do, we do go, at least, <clears throat> let's put it this way, when theaters were open, we did go a lot to see uh, dance performances of all kinds in New York City. And our daughter was a professional ballet dancer oh. in Europe. After she graduated from high school, she spent two years in Norway as a member of the Norwegian National Ballet. But well, we need to name these women, Dr. Foner. Lynn Garofola, and your daughter's name is Daria? Yeah, Daria, thank you. You're absolutely right. Lynn Garofola is my wife. Daria Foner is my daughter. Um, Unfortunately, like many ballet dancers, she suffered injuries. It's very hard on the body. It's she had so knee, hard. She had knee surgery, she had foot surgery, and she stopped and went to Princeton, which is not a bad backup plan. Um, not at all. And she's now a PhD in art history, so she's also a historian. Although there a you go. Renaissance Italian art, which I've learned a lot about by hearing from her. I love thinking about kinetic intelligence um, via kinetic the dance. Intelligence. Interesting. I don't have any of that at all. <laughs> I, so I wouldn't know directly. I mean, I'm sure there is, but I'm pretty uh, uncoordinated. Um, I think dancers have it. Absolutely. They, yep. can, they can remember, they have body memory of complicated thing. I mean, to, being a ballet performance is a tremendously complicated thing. Um, and, uh, but they have this body memory, which enables them to do it. And uh, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Uh, as I say, my daughter, whatever talent my daughter has is hard work and inheritance, but not from me. <laughs> I also need to mention, because it sticks to my breastbone that Henry Louis Gates Jr describes you as the intellectual grandson of W.E.B. Du Bois. That's, that's about as fine a compliment as anyone can have. Uh, du Bois is a great, great figure of American history, a total Renaissance man, a, a, a novelist, a historian, a sociologist, a political activist. A, I mean, every, you name it, and du, du Bois was there, pioneer of the Black movement, uh, Pan-Africanism, uh, 
editor of the Crisis for Years magazine of the NAACP. That's right. Um, unbelievable career. Born during Reconstruction, 1868. Died 95 years later, 1963, on the eve of the March on Washington uh, mm -hmm. in Ghana, in Africa. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I guess what Skip uh, Gates is saying is talking about is my book uh, on Reconstruction, yes. which is inspired by Du Bois. Du Bois's book, Black Reconstruction, is a great monument of American historical writing. But it was written in the 1930s. It was written at a time when he wasn't, both because of race and because of age, wasn't in a position to travel around to archives in the South. So I borrowed with attribution many of his insights, but it's a different book, mine. It's it's a research-based book, um, you know, out of the archives. Right. Um, his work is an inspiration to me and to anybody studying the history of um, Reconstruction, and also the final chapter of that book called The Propaganda of History. Uh, I always, I don't care what the course, I ask my students to read it because it's a devastating indictment of the historical profession in this country and the way for years, decades, they sacrificed historical truth on the altar of racism. And, um, you know, the reconstruction, the, hist the historiography of reconstruction is overlaid with this racist mythology, which was, it, it shows you why history is important. It's not just an academic exercise. What historians write matters to the society. The racist view of reconstruction as a disaster because black people are just not capable of exercising the right to vote intelligently um, was a fundamental uh, justification for the disenfranchisement of black voters in the Jim Crow South. They, they, you know, if people said, well, this is not democracy, these people need the right to vote, uh, white Southerners would say, if we give them the right to vote, you'll have the horrors of Reconstruction again. And that kind of thinking lasted all the way into the 1950s and 60s. And, and it and still I, lingers I, in lost cause um, sentimentality. It's probably lost cause, yeah. I'm happy to be one of those who have helped to destroy the old racist view of Reconstruction. By no means the only one, obviously, but um, because I think that matters to our society. I found it very interesting that last night during the debate over the electoral votes, um, Lindsey Graham, the Senator from South Carolina chided uh, Ted Cruz for his plan to, his proposal to have an electoral commission look into the voting as in 1876 at the end of Reconstruction. And he said, we don't want to relive the ending of Reconstruction. This is Lindsey Graham, a very conservative guy from South Carolina with a fraught history. And yet he's basically embracing the idea that Reconstruction was a good thing and we shouldn't, you know, use Dismantle a it again. which led to its abandonment. So I found that gratifying. I'm so glad you picked that up because what a predicament uh, Lindsey Graham is in the body politic. So yeah, two, year, two or three years ago, Lindsey Graham was calling for repealing the 14th Amendment. 
because right. because it gives citizenship to anybody born in the United States, whether they're legally here or not. We have flown through this time, and I'm so grateful for you and the work you've accomplished through your lifetime and that you continue to accomplish, which is illustrated by the ringing phone of today. And I want to allow you to go back to that work, but thank you deeply for all you do, Professor Wong. Well, thank you. I'm always delighted to talk about history and it's a great, a great honor to receive this award. So I'm, you know, extremely gratified. Thank you. The Asterix is brought to you by the Cleveland Foundation. The executive producer is Alan Ashby, and the producer is Jay Williams, general manager of WOBU Radio. I'm Karen Long. I manage the awards. This work today is brought to you by the Cleveland Foundation, WOBU Radio, and the Burton Bell Car Development Corporation.